apart. There is the word of God and then there are all the other merely human words. And so uh, that uh, is that's significant. And I'm about to talk about its unique authority in relation to other sources of authority. But that authority, that conviction of authority actually doesn't depend on anything external to Scripture, anything outside itself for its authority. The Bible of the Word of God is what we call self-authenticating. And the Confession puts it this way, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. As the word of God, its authority derives from itself. It is not dependent on anything outside itself. Ultimately, we don't receive the Bible's authoritative because of the witness of the church or of influential leaders or because we have heard good arguments for its authority. We receive it as authority, authoritative because God speaks in Scripture and God's witness is ultimate. He doesn't need anybody else to verify or confirm his truthfulness. Its unique authority as God's word needs to be grasped and defended because in Christian history there have always been other contenders for final authority amongst God's people and they are thought of as tradition, reason and experience. And I'm going to talk about each one of those uh, and both their deficiencies and what role they might play in our lives as we seek to know God's, uh, God's will for our lives. Now these contenders for the faith and obedience of God's people, tradition, reason and experience, have been there from the beginning. And scripture warns us of them for from the beginning the apostles were actively concerned to establish the truth and concerned how the truth should be established. So we are, for example, in Galatians, warned about letting the personal dignity, dignity of the speaker sway us from faithfulness to God's revealed truth. Even if we are an angel from heaven, and it's hard to become a bit more hard to be more dignified than an angel from heaven, uh, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. The personal identity or dignity of the speaker doesn't establish truth, nor do their academic qualifications. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Nor does honoured tradition establish truth. Uh, we looked at Mark 7 last week, just the one, you leave the commandment of God, he said to the Pharisees, and hold to the tradition of men. The rules that they had elaborated actually displaced the truth of God. And we're warned uh, about letting the origin of uh, a teaching in visionary states or impressive religious experience become the source of truth. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reasons by sensuous minds. So we are warned, in a sense, not to let personal dignity, academic qualification, honour tradition or impressive religious experience establish 
the truth for us. The only source of truth for us is God's word in relation to God, the apostolic word, and that is the test of all other claims to truth about God. Over all these, and to be distinguished from all these, is the gospel preached by the apostles, the word of God given through Jesus' apostles. Now, what is claimed for these other authorities? Because there are people who make big claims for all of them, and uh, how should we think of the role of each in the Christian life? Because we all have tradition, we all have reason, and we all have experience. So I'm going to spend some time now on the formal claims made for tradition by the Roman Catholic Church so that we understand why our Roman Catholic friends often believe things that have no basis in Scripture and also their criticisms of our reliance on Scripture alone. And I'm relying on the documents of Vatican II and the Catholic Catechism. Now, the claims for tradition are actually very well articulated in the Catholic position. The apostolic preaching is, they say, expressed in a special way in the inspired books, but also was preserved in a continuous line of succession, an oral tradition distinct from the inspired books. The teaching preserved in that continuous line of succession is the tradition, which the church not only preserves, but can elaborate. That tradition makes progress. It's through the tradition, for example, that the full canon of the sacred books is known to the church. So in a sense, the tradition establishes the canon, as we'll say. And so they say, sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God, which is entrusted to the church. Now, if you're a Protestant and have only ever been a Protestant, that's a hard thought to get your head around. But for the Catholic church, there are two sources of the word of God apostolic tradition and apostolic scripture. Uh, and, but they're both uh, equally the word of God. And as a consequence, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Whereas if you're a Protestant, you know, we say grace alone, faith alone, right? Uh, you know, Christ alone, God's glory alone, and scripture alone. This is a direct repudiation of that. So both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honoured with equal sentiments of devotion and adoration. And remember that's an oral tradition entrusted to the church which the church can elaborate, which makes progress over time. And so the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. So who gets to tell you what the word of God is? Coming from those two sources, one of which is entrusted entirely to the church. It's actually the church. And when they say the church, they're not talking about a congregation of God's people. They're talking about the institutional hierarchy. So it's the pope and the bishops. Uh, to which the Catechism adds, uh, this means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. And they see this tradition as necessary because of the difficulties of interpretation and the failure of Protestants to preserve unity just relying on scripture alone. 
and they see it as necessary for new authoritative responses to changed situations, like, uh, for example, contraception, things like that. Uh, and they also see it as necessary and possible because the church is the dwelling place of the spirit. But remember, they actually mean the institutional church. So in Catholic theology, and when you're talking to your Catholic friends, it's important to recognise that the word of God has two sources. And both are subservient to the church, which is both the guardian and elaborator of the tradition and the authentic interpreter of both. And of course that makes the official teaching of the institutional church absolutely necessary for your relationship with God. It is a sin not to believe dogmas elaborated uh, and declared by the church. This is from the Catechism 87 and 88. Mindful of Christ's words to his apostles, he who hears you hears me, the faithful receive with docility the teachings and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. You think, wow, that'd be good. No, uh, right. Uh, then you think the church's magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ to the fullest extent when it defines dogmas. That is, when it proposes truths contained in divine revelation or having a necessary connection with them in a form obliging the Christian people to an irrevocable adherence of faith. So when the church elaborates a dogma, if you're a Christian, it's a sin not to believe it. Now, you think, what are the dogmas? Uh, actually, there's a list. Uh, there's also a list. There are long lists. But So all the truths in the creed are dogmas, but it also includes things like transubstantiation, papal infallibility, the immaculate conception, that's at Mary 1854, perpetual virginity, and assumption of Mary, that Christ gave his church a hierarchical structure, so if you don't believe in the position of the Pope, you're sinning. All seven sacraments instituted by the church, the way they work, there are a whole lot of them, actually. So that's why your Catholic friends are meant to believe them and they are actually reliant on the church, really, for their relationship with God. That's what tradition does. Now, how to respond? Well, there is Mark 7, which makes a clear distinction between the word of God and the traditions of men. And Jesus says that obeying the traditions of men and letting them supplant the word of God is sin. But also the best refutation, I think, of this view of tradition is what it's actually led to, the dogmas that it's promulgated which you have to believe. And since so, you actually have to believe that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus, which is, to be honest, a nonsense, okay? Uh, like life. You actually have to believe that even though scripture says Mary had a lot of other children who are called cousins in the Catholic Bible, she was a perpetual virgin, which is a multiplication of miracles. Right? You, you, there are a whole lot of things that you actually have to believe. So the best refutation of it is actually the dogmas that they have pronounced. And it is clear that it transfers authority to people in fact, to the institution, uh, and it supports and sustains the role of the institution. Uh, yeah, another way to respond to it is, as we'll come to a correct understanding of sufficiency, the sufficiency and clarity of Scripture. But what tradition here has done is substitute faith in God for faith in man. 
the human hierarchy of the church and it actually subordinates God revealing his will and relating his people to the church. It undermines the authority of God's word by equating it with a human word. And that's spiritually dangerous because you can disobey a human word and not get into trouble. But you can't disobey God and not get into trouble. It's spiritually perilous. And that was a view of tradition rejected at the Reformation, as you uh, see in the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith and the Anglican Articles. So there's one alternative to the authority of Scripture, and that is the authority of tradition. Now then there are what I call subjectivist views, which also want to locate authority other than in the word of God uh, in things like reason and experience and conscience. They're subjective because the authority is actually located in us, either individually or collectively. Uh, and so it involves, a, so, and it can also include a commitment to making your experience, for example, as a feminist or as a marginalised person of colour, determinative in your reading of scripture, making your experience the test of all truth. And that's why you then get some you know, radically different theologies, uh, feminist theologies. So the teachings of scripture in this view are to be measured up against these other sources and only believed where compatible with them. And we see where that uh, uh, lies. So where uh, autonomous enlightenment reason is elevated to be the final authority, uh, you have a rejection of miracles or the resurrection as being incompatible with scientific history. Where conscience is elevated as the final authority, then only what is consistent with the dictates of your 21st century Western conscience probably is acceptable, and parts, usually the Old Testament, but not necessarily, uh, you know, perhaps in relation to violence or something, are rejected, or the ethical teachings on sexuality or the teaching on hell or on the exclusiveness of faith in Jesus are all rejected. And of course, where you make your conscience supreme, it's hard ever to be challenged by God's word to go beyond your cultural norms. It actually it makes obedience to God uh, the obedience of faith difficult. And sometimes experience is elevated to be the authority. So scripture's testimony, for example, is forced to conform to your experience to teach, say, an explicit second baptism for all because you've experienced a, a second experience or healing for all because you've experienced healing. Or as stated above, your experience becomes the grid to determine what is the word of God. Uh, and so, for example, for feminists, anything patriarchal is dismissed as oppressive and you don't have to listen to it even if it's in the scripture. So if you make those absolute, uh, if you make uh, these uh, reason or experience or conscience the final absolute authority, uh, you immediately undermine your relationship with God. You'll never be able to practice the obedience of faith. Your faith won't be the faith of Abraham, who could hear a word which made no sense, which contradicted uh, conscience and of which he had no experience. And he honoured God by believing it and doing it and was vindicated by God. So, and that's thinking about Abraham's offering of Isaac. But what is the place of each of these? Tradition, reason, experience. Well, each does have a place, but they have to be subservient to and disciplined uh, by scripture. 
uh, not equating here scripture with anyone's particular interpretation of scripture, but scripture itself. So let's start with tradition. Tradition can be thought of as a fellowship with other believers across the ages through considering the writings and considered opinions born out of an attempt, their attempt to be faithful in their own day in the context of the challenges they've met. So just as fellowship with our brothers and sisters now is important, that fellowship, that awareness of what believers in the past have thought and which is usually can be woefully absent from modern Christianity, uh, and the conclusions they've come to is important. First of all, it helps us see the peculiarities of our own time-bound assumptions by seeing theirs. Uh, now, you may, uh, we don't see the air we breathe. We don't see the water we swim in, uh, but actually affects us. And so, you know, we go back and read a Luther and you think, how did he get away with scatological language like that and not be troubled by it? And he wasn't, and his language was extremely colourful. Well, it's because, actually, you read a lot of other people in the 16th century, they were all talking like that. Or you go back to Augustine and you think, man, that bloke's got an odd view of virginity and marriage and he's one of the great saints. And then you think, actually... Luther, Augustine, they were faithful people who studied God's word. What am I blind to? What am I not seeing that come another 100 or 200 years, they'll look at it and think, how could he believe that? How could he believe that about money? Or, which may be one of our besetting sins. So first of all, they challenge you to actually see, try and get beyond your culture. Secondly, the past exercises a discipline over us, just as, hopefully, you would be cautious if you found yourself believing what none of your other Christian brothers and sisters believed. You know, hopefully in that case you'd wonder if you were wrong. So if you found that you or your grasp or your group were starting to believe something that no one in Christian history had believed or they'd actually considered and rejected, if you found that, surely you'd become extremely cautious. You'd seriously wonder if you had got it right. And yet there is no end of movements who think that genuine Christianity has been revived just with them. Right? So it exercises a discipline over us. And we have to recognise that God has provided teachers of his word across the century. That's part of his provision for us. You know, the ascended Lord Jesus gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, and not just, well, definitely not with apostles, but, but, but he doesn't just give teachers in the present. Okay? He gives uh, preachers in, in the, in, in the, teachers in the past. But equally so, you wouldn't invest, hopefully, your brothers and sisters in the present with infallibility, would you? Right, and in relation to what they said, including those who are authorised to teach, you would test all things against the word. Right, so with tradition, it's helpful, very helpful, but to be tested against the word, for the saints in the past were as frail and fallible as we are, and you'd specifically reject the Roman elaboration of tradition as being, in this case, without historical foundation, the suggestion that. You know, the Lord Jesus created a college of sacrificing priests and all that kind of stuff. And in many places, actually repugnant to Scripture. But Scripture is supreme and you can actually make use 
and enjoy the testimony of your brothers and sisters in the past if you keep scripture supreme because it tells you what you can take from them and, and what you should learn by rejecting what they said. So what about reason? Autonomous reason, the reason that sees humanity as the measure of all things and accountable ultimately only to itself, cannot be our starting place or final authority because we do believe in what's called total depravity and that is that every part of our being, including our reason, has been affected by the fall, corrupted by turning away from love of God to love of self. And so it's a very fallible guide about God's will. God has decided, remember 1 Corinthians 1, that he will not be known through wisdom. Since verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In, in fact, reason would never alone embrace the cross, would it? And yet that's how God saves us. So at the start, we see reason has clear limitations. And our starting point has to be the gospel of the cross that's exposed the folly of autonomous human reason. But reason can and must be the servant of faith, of faith seeking to understand what's been given in Revelation. You know, Paul doesn't want us to be babes, children in our thinking. He wants us to grow up in our thinking, to mature in our thinking. And true worship, he says, is expressed by having our minds transformed. So our minds always have to be engaged with what God has said. We're expected to use our brains in understanding scripture and testing truth claims. And faith and reason go together. They're not exclusive. They're not distinct and separate domains. Faith can be seen as the reasonable response to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. It is very reasonable to trust someone who's been raised from the dead, especially when he's talking about life after death. He's probably the person you ought to trust. Uh, but faith, of course, is always more than an intellectual assent. And reason itself is actually always dependent in some way on faith. Though many deny it, but actually Richard Dawkins is a great example of it. In his commitment to materialism, he has a fundamental commitment to an untested axiom, and that is that matter is all there is. He can actually never verify that by experiment because it's his starting point, and he's already excluded the spiritual from consideration as an explanation. Reason always involves some element of faith. It takes axioms that can't be tested for granted in its interaction with the world. So faith and reason are not distinct. They actually do uh, overlap. And so, uh, But reason has to be subjected to the gospel of the cross and then it can become a useful servant. So what of experience? Experience, including what we might call spiritual experiences, don't carry their own interpretation. Right? An experience is always one of a sequence of experiences, and in a sense you need to know what is true before and after that sequence to be able to properly interpret the true meaning of experience. In, in a sense you actually need uh, also not just the knowledge but a worldview. Now, now let me illustrate that. Simple illustration, if you're, you girls, you can reverse this, but let's say you're a bloke and you see a girl smiling at you at the bus stop. 
and your heart goes pitter-pat, pitter-pat, right? Now, what does it mean? Well, it might mean she's embarrassed because she's passing wind and, and, and she smiles a little when she's embarrassed. It might mean that she's thinking that you will be a soft target for her gang of pickpockets. Oh, it could mean that she's hoping you'll talk to her. Actually, she was really just smiling at her boyfriend behind you. No, she was listening to a podcast of the Goon Show. You just couldn't see those really fancy earpieces. Or she was mistaking you for her cousin, whom she hasn't seen in three years. Or alternatively, she might be trying to start a movement that brightens up people's day by smiling randomly at strangers. You've had the experience. What does it mean? You actually need a bit of revelation, don't you? to get what that means. You might actually have to talk to her, or at least turn around and see the boyfriend. And, and before you talk to her, that would always be wise because he might be six foot three. And, right? You need the whole to get a true interpretation of the significance of any one part. And that is actually true of bigger experiences in life. So a classic example is the Assyrian uh, conquest of the northern kingdom, Israel, and then their invasion of Judah. Now, the Assyrians were absolutely confident about what their triumph meant. Uh, it says in, in Isaiah 10, uh, it says, Are not all my commanders kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? And it goes on, And my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. I'll do to her what I've done to them. And, and then this is what the king says of Assyria, By the strength of my hand I've done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of peoples and plundered. They, he knew what his successful conquest meant. It meant that he was great. And his people were the greatest. And they were going to get whatever they wanted. But God had a completely different interpretation of what was going on. Our Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. And against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder. Oh, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. One experience, example of conquest, two quite different interpretations. And if you wanted to follow that through, you could turn to Sennacherib's speeches in Isaiah 36 and 37. Whose interpretation proved true? Well, Jerusalem was never conquered. Sennacherib's army was decimated by a plague and he returned empty-handed. You actually need to know the whole to understand the meaning of the part. You need revelation to actually understand what something really means. Revelation from the one who knows all. And though we do it all the time, experience alone is actually an insufficient predictor even of any future action, let alone of any moral necessity. Experience, including our own, always needs interpretation by Scripture. It by itself can't establish truth. 
scripture must always stand over experience and interpret our experience. Nevertheless, experience is important in confirming the truth of scripture, in giving you a growing conviction of its truthfulness. We act in faith and we find God faithful. So tradition, reason, experience all have a place but a subordinate role. All need to be healed for all are afflicted with sin. And that will actually only happen when all three are informed and disciplined by scripture. And so they don't even have, as some claim, a coordinate or equal authority. All might and should be employed, but to make tradition or reason say coordinate uh, with the word of God is to subordinate the word of God to your tradition or reason. The word is distinct because it is the word of the living God and must remain distinct and overall the supreme standard. The supreme judge, as the confession says, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined. Now, sometimes people will try and pit God's spirit against his word, contrast what they call the living word with the written word, setting the leading of the spirit, as they call it, against the letter, the written word. Now, God gave the scriptures through the Spirit. Remember, one, 2 Peter 1, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Right? The scripture is written, in a sense, by the Spirit. He determines the end of their speaking and their writing. And here's a key principle. The Spirit in our lives will never contradict the Spirit in his word, for the Spirit will not speak against himself. And you need to have that absolutely clear. The spirit in our lives will never contradict the spirit in his word, for the spirit will not speak against himself. And that should be clear. But, you know, there have been sects that have embraced uh, sexual immorality on the word of a prophet, when God's word clearly, clearly forbids it. It's as the, it is as spirit-given that the scripture is Christ's scepter, that he rules over his people in his church through the gifts of teaching and preaching, of reading and mutual exhortation that he has given to us all. So ultimately the authority of the word is about the authority of Christ being recognised and accepted amongst those who claim to be his followers. It is his gift to us, his word, to guide us, in his will and strengthen our trust in him. And as the word of God, it should always be studied with humility. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And to study it in humility means that we all have to be willing to subject our private opinions, leanings, hunches, current fashions, traditions to its authority and be willing to be corrected and we all have to learn to rigorously separate speculation and opinion from what Scripture clearly says. That would be very helpful to your brothers and sisters if you can separate those two things. But we never study Scripture in a disinterested way. As the Word of God, we study to know its good work as the gift to us of our good God to keep us trusting and following Jesus. And in the end... What scripture says must always settle the question of what we believe and how we behave for what scripture says, God says. And what scripture says is true.
So this brings us to the trustworthiness of Scripture and these words infallibility and inerrancy, which are defined there. Infallibility is the quality of neither deceiving nor being deceived, neither misleading or being misled. And inerrancy is the quality of being free from any kind, of error of any kind, factual, moral or spiritual. Now, while being distinguished, they go together. To be infallible, you need to be free from error. And if you're free from error, you will be infallible. Now, what are they affirming and what are they not claiming? Well, they are both negatives to affirm a positive, that the scripture is wholly trustworthy and wholly true and so wholly reliable, so that what it asserts is to be believed, what it commands is to be obeyed, what it promises is to be trusted. It's saying you can base your life on scripture and it will never let you down. But notice, it's what it affirms, because scripture does report lies like, you will not die. That was a big lie. But it does report them accurately as lies. And when we're speaking of infallibility, again, I'll say we're not affirming the infallibility or inerrancy of any particular interpretation or interpreter. And this doctrine doesn't tell us exactly what Scripture does assert. It just says that what Scripture properly understood does assert is to be believed and accepted as wholly true. So you have to still do the work of understanding it. Now, why do we affirm this and what do we do with difficulties we encounter in our reading of Scripture? Well, there are five reasons. The first two are the most important. Firstly, the Bible's teaching on its own inspiration, that it's God's word, as we've seen at length in the witness of Jesus and the apostles. It's God-breathed. It's men speaking from God as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the God who gives us this word is trustworthy and true. He does not lie. He never lies. God who never lies. And we see that commitment to truth in the way Deuteronomy speaks of the accreditation of God's message and God's messenger. Uh, if you were to read Deuteronomy 13 and 18, it speaks about prophets and what you do with people who come and say they're prophets. And in Deuteronomy 13, it says, well, if, if somebody comes and gives a prophecy and they tell you of a sign or wonder, and that sign or wonder comes to pass, you think, wow, that's impressive. And then it says, but if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You see, the test of the truthfulness of revelation is its conformity to existing revelation because God doesn't contradict himself. And the second test, Deuteronomy 18, is of course conformity to reality. So if a prophet presumes to speak in a word in my name and it doesn't come true, you don't listen to him and in fact, though I have not noticed this being uh, practised much in some churches, but if somebody says something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, that same prophet shall die. Probably not the best pastoral approach to that. Uh, right, but, but, but God expects his word to be true, consistent with what he's already said and consistent with reality. And then, of course, there's the Bible's teaching on its own authority, which is a teaching on its permanence. And what that's saying is that because it's true, it will be never superseded. And... Uh, the final demonstration of the truthfulness of Scripture, perhaps a bit refined, but those arguments that you've got there that uh, 
really depend on just one word of Scripture. So take Matthew 22. Uh, there Jesus said to the Pharisees, how is it then, you know, he said, the Messiah, his son, is he, they say David's, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now that argument depends upon actually that phrase, my Lord, it actually depends upon the first singular possessive suffix on the word uh, Lord or Adonai in Hebrew. It, it depends on the truthfulness of the written word. Or again, John 10, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came in scripture cannot be broken. Jesus' argument would have no force if the word gods was not true, if it was not there. It depends on that. Matthew 22, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. It actually depends upon the tense of the verb, ego ami, uh, Exodus uh, 3.6. So, so this is a commitment to the truthfulness of the words of Scripture. These arguments only have force if the words, written words, are true. And a famous one, Galatians 3.6. Now the promises 3.16 were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. No, no, it says referring to one, just one. It's the difference between the singular and the plural, both in Hebrew and Greek. Those arguments all depend on the truthfulness of the written word. If the text of scripture is not inerrant, as Feinberg says, it's difficult to see the point of these arguments. And so, Inerrancy and fallibility is a truth grounded in Scripture in the way it speaks about and handles itself and an expression of the character of the God who made the Scriptures. Uh, and we'll come back uh, to uh, some qualification of them, uh, though I'll probably go over that very quickly because I really want to do with uh, sufficiency and clarity because they're both under challenge in fact, I'll probably just start at sufficiency and you can ask me about inerrancy when we come back. And I want to get to the question of canon. So we're going to stop now and we'll be back at five past.